Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. I am Pete Stearns. I'm our student ministry director here, but you can also call me Steve Noble or Aaron Foster. You see, Steve and Aaron and I work with our youth here at the church, and it turns out that, that our students and their parents have a pretty hard time figuring out who's who. In fact, pretty often I am asked about my engagement when really that's Steve's wedding that we're anticipated, or Aaron and Steve are asked about their newborn child, Shepherd, who's actually my son. Uh, it's gotten to the point where we just nod our heads and say yes, and if the message is important, we forward it along to the right person. It's gotten so bad, in fact, that there have been times that our wives have walked into our offices and accidentally called us by the wrong name. You see, we've all experienced uh, this, this horrifying social experiment, right, where we, where we come in and we misidentify someone. We mistake their identity. Just a few weeks ago, uh, I was talking to a lady for 30 or 40 seconds, uh, and it just felt a little bit uncomfortable, and I couldn't figure out why she was being so hostile. Uh, normally, it was, it was easy to talk to her until I realized that I had no idea who she was. I thought she was somebody else, and she definitely had no idea who I was. So I apologized, and in my embarrassment, quickly got as far away from her as I possibly could, hoping that she would never remember me or remember my face. You see, when we find ourselves in those moments, we are filled with embarrassment, and we try to escape as quickly as we can. Well, today we're going to be telling a story of mistaken identity, but this mistaken identity is one that has been invasive in our culture. It is one that has pervaded throughout time and continues to shape how we view our religion, and our faith. You see, the mistaken identity that took place on Palm Sunday is one that I think we can relate to. You see, the people came to this Passover festival on Palm Sunday thinking that Jesus was somebody that he was not. You see, they thought he was two different types of people. They thought he was an entertainment or he was there to meet their need. And those assumptions about Jesus still impact how we see him today. The Passover festival was a big deal in the, in the Hebrew tradition. Uh, it was much like uh, a holiday like Easter or Christmas that we might celebrate ourselves. There was uh, time to get together with family to spend time with loved ones. They, they made treks across the country in order to be in the right place. My wife and I trade off uh, between our in-laws' homes for Christmas. One year we're in Minnesota with Brittany's family, and one year we're in Seattle with my family. Well, it was kind of like that during Passover, except one year the tradition would be that you would stay home with your family and your community, and then the second year you would make a trek to the holy city, Jerusalem, to spend that Passover festival remembering uh, the Israelites' salvation out of Egypt in, in the temple with, with the other believers that surrounded you. And so it was said that um, any given Passover, there was about half the entire population of Israel descending upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a, a town of 100,000. It was fairly large for that time, but, but during the Passover festival, a typical Passover would bring in over a million people into that city. During this week, it was alive with energy. 
It was chaotic. It was frenzied. It was much like Black Friday shopping after Thanksgiving. But this particular Passover was an even bigger deal because the people of Israel had heard that this rabbi that had been going around the countryside doing miraculous works and and teaching thousands of people would be there. And so many of them altered their travel plans. They wanted to see this Jesus. They didn't have a chance to watch him on live stream or to uh, read his or watch his podcasts. Instead, they had never seen him. They had just heard word of mouth that this rabbi would be in Jerusalem. And so many more came out. It's a little bit morbid, but the way they tracked Passover in a census was that uh, the historians would count the amount of lambs that were sacrificed for the Passover meal. And a typical Passover meal, there would be 10 people that would join together to share in this lamb uh, and to share in this celebration and remembrance. Well, that particular year, historians say that there appear to be 270,000 lambs that were sacrificed. And if we do the math there, that means that roughly 2.7 million people were in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. They had come out to see Jesus. They wanted to know who he was. They wanted to catch a glimpse of of this spectacle or of this conquering king. And they wanted to see if their assumptions about him were correct. Now, a few months ago, I got caught up in the spectacle of the solar eclipse. How many of us were pretty excited about the solar eclipse? These are my staff colleagues that that took a little bit of time out of work, my wife and my little son, as we were um, trying to catch a glimpse at this solar activity. Now, if I am totally honest, I was not all that concerned with the activity of the sun before this day. In fact, I didn't even know this solar eclipse was that big of a deal. I've heard that it's once in a lifetime, but I kind of remember doing, watching a solar eclipse when I was in first grade and then like seventh grade and 11th grade and like every year after that. So uh, apparently it's once in a lifetime though, and I found that out because Facebook told me it was really, really important. Okay, And so after Facebook told me it was really, really important and and our entire culture got stirred up into this frenzy of viewing parties and going out to see it, Facebook also told us that it was incredibly dangerous, right? That if you even glimpsed this for a moment, your retinas would be burned out. And so we were stuck in this tension. Do I want to see this once in a lifetime thing or be blind for the rest of my life? I don't know. I'm having a hard time. But they told us that there's a cure to this blindness. All you need are these cardboard glasses, and you can stare directly into the sun. And so there was a rush on these like 50-cent cardboard glasses, and Amazon was selling them for hundreds of dollars. My wife and I went from library to library where they were giving them out, but the lines would be so long, by the time we got there, they were all gone. And so finally, I scrounged some up because of a generous donation to the church. Somebody had left a few on Sandy Tower's office, and so I slipped in and snagged them. Uh, And and I went home, and the the big day was coming, and we we checked our watches. We made sure that we were right. We had, like, the solar eclipse tracker on our computers telling us the exact optimal viewing time. Uh, and, And I went outside, and I looked at the solar eclipse, and I was sorely disappointed. For those of you who did not experience the solar eclipse, I want to let you experience this incredible spectacle right now. Okay, look at a light. Put your hand over your eye 
and just make a little crack in your fingers. That is exactly what the solar eclipse was like. Um, and so I went back inside of the house and continued not caring about solar activity or eclipses or how frequently they would come in my lifetime. Uh, the reality is that, that we got stirred up and we wanted to partake in something that was supposedly important, that was supposedly meaningful, that would supposedly change our lives. Well, the same is true of the people that came out to see Jesus at Palm Sunday. You see, they had heard that this rabbi was more than just a good teacher. This rabbi was a rabbi that could take just a few loaves of bread and fish and feed thousands of people. This was a rabbi that could turn water into wine. This was a rabbi that could heal the sick and give sight to the blind. And so they wanted to go out and they wanted to see him. Um, in fact, when we pick up this narrative, we're going to go uh, three verses before we typically talk about Palm Sunday because I think it's interesting, the inclusion of a few primary characters in this story that we have ignored. John 12, 9 says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So these huge crowds that we talk about, a large majority of them had come not just because of Jesus, but to see this zombie character Lazarus that we've been talking so much about over the past weeks. They had come because they had heard that this man healed someone from the dead, and this dead man that was walking was going to be with Jesus as he entered into the holy city for the Passover festival. And so they wanted to catch a glimpse of him. It continues on in verse 17 um, when it says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. You see, these people that were standing at the side of the road, these 2.7 million Jews that had come out to see Jesus, were there not because he had changed their life, not because they were attracted to his message of love, peace, grace, and humility, but instead because they wanted to be entertained. They wanted to see something spectacular. They wanted to see if he was really all that people had cracked him up to be. And so they came out and they watched him and waited for him to do something miraculous. Well, I don't know about you, but I can resonate with this at at some level in my faith, is that oftentimes I see Jesus as, as an avenue to entertain me. I like going to church because I really enjoy the community, the friendships, the encouraging messages. I like a specific type of music when I'm at church. We think that there are certain types of refreshments that we can have while at church, and if those refreshments are taken away, we might just have to skip out on this whole Jesus thing. We come because Jesus meets this need to make us feel good. 
to make us feel happy. Jesus has become a spectacle in many of our lives, and even if that's not always the case, I am sure that there are moments in your faith where you have looked to Jesus to entertain you. But the problem with doing this is that when Jesus becomes a source of entertainment, his value, his kingdom, his mission, his message are entirely dependent upon that which entertains you in the moment. How many of us are still entertained by the same movies we watched when we were 13? Not a lot of us. When I was 13, any movie that had the action star Jackie Chan in it immediately was my favorite movie that I had ever seen. Well, fortunately, that's no longer the case for me. You see, the reality is, is if Jesus is entertaining us, then there are going to be times where he doesn't seem that entertaining. There are going to be times where his message doesn't really bring us happiness and joy and warm, fuzzy feelings, but instead convicts us and challenges us and makes us uncomfortable. And if he was just entertainment in the first place, it's really easy to walk away from him at those points. We just saw a picture of my little son there, and one of my favorite things to do with him after work is to sit on our rocking chair that's sitting at the front window and read books. And one of my particularly favorite books is the book, Are You My Mother? How many of us have read or heard of this book, Are You My Mother? Good. Well, I'm going to paraphrase it for those that have not read it before, but essentially, Are You My Mother? starts off with a bird sitting on a nest in a tree with a little egg. And that bird feels her egg begin to rattle and shake, and she knows that that means her baby is coming. And she comes to this realization that she doesn't have any food for the baby. And so she quickly flies away, seeking out a worm so that she can bring it back so that when her baby is born, he will be well fed. Well, as sometimes is the case, the baby came sooner than expected. And he cracks out of his egg, and he looks around in his world, and he sees nothing around him that's familiar. He's never been here before, but he identifies a need for a mother. He has never had a mother, he has never met a mother, he has never seen a mother, but he knows he needs a mother. And so he leaves the nest, and he begins searching for a mother. And in fact, on the third page of the book, he walks right past his actual mother, and instead turns to a kitten, and asks if that kitten is his mother. You see, he has an acute need for protection, Acute need for somebody to look over him, to give him stability. And so he goes out and he tries to assume what a mother must be like based on his specific needs. Well, there's a second group of people that have joined Jesus in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And they are doing a very similar thing. They are coming to Jesus with needs. And they're trying to fit Jesus within their needs. And this is one of those things that we kind of miss when we read this passage lightly. It becomes a little bit new, more nuanced as we look into the culture uh, and the background of this story. But first, I want to read uh, these familiar verses from John 12, 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. 
Well, just like our holidays have traditions, the Jewish holidays had traditions as well. We have symbols for our holidays. Uh, this next week, we'll all be decorating eggs for Easter. Tomorrow night, my small group is going to visit the Easter bunny with our little children. Well, during Christmas, we cut down pine trees, and we bring them into our homes, and we decorate them. And when we see these telltale signs of these holidays, we recognize what this season is. Well, the same is true for the symbols of Passover. And the symbols of Passover are, are, are the lamb slaughtered. They're the blood over the door frames of the homes, indicating that they are a family that is protected by God. It's unleavened bread to point to the haste in which the Israelites had to leave their captivity. But you know what is not a symbol of the Passover? The palm branch. And, and it's not just not a symbol of the Passover. Instead, it's a symbol of another holiday entirely. You see, the last time that palm branches were used were in celebration of the festival of the feasts, or as we call it now, Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is a remembrance of, of the great leader Judas of Maccabees, 150 years before Jesus came, who came as a Jewish leader and conqueror and overthrew the Syrian rule. And as he came back from war, riding on his war horse to Jerusalem, the holy city, Great crowds of people came out to usher him into the city, and they took palm branches, and they laid them before him, and guess what they said? Hosanna. You see, this is a part of the Hanukkah tradition. And if we understand that it's part of the Hanukkah tradition, but now it's taking place during Passover, we recognize a little bit about what these Jewish people believed Jesus to be. You see, as they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel, they weren't talking about a king of heaven and earth. They instead thought Jesus was their conqueror. They instead thought he was the second coming of Judas of Maccabees. You see, the Jews right now were under the tyranny and oppression of the Roman Empire. And they were struggling under their strict taxation and legality. They couldn't live the way that they were intended to live. And they were desperate for someone to free them from this rule. You see, they had needs. And they assumed that their Savior would come to not meet a need in the world, but instead to meet their very specific, very focused needs. And so when Jesus comes in on that triumphant entry, they turn to him and they assume that he is there to overthrow the Roman Empire, when in reality that couldn't be further from the truth. You see, I think a lot of us struggle with this perspective of Jesus as well. We come into church and we have needs, we're in broken relationships. We're in times of financial strife and struggle. We feel empty inside, and so we assume that Jesus is there to meet all of those needs. We say all the time that, that I had a hole in my heart, and, and Jesus came to fill it. Well, the truth is, is that God didn't come to fill a hole in us, but he came for 
all of us. He wants our entire life. He is not just a piece of the puzzle that is our story. He can't just fit conveniently into our plan, into our narrative. You see, more often than not, when you're trying to put a piece of a puzzle in and it doesn't fit, you just discard it. And so when our needs don't line up exactly with what Jesus offers us, it becomes very easy to discard him and assume that that wasn't what I should have been doing all along. Jesus didn't come to meet your need. He came to be your foundation. He came so that he could take all of you so that you could fit into his kingdom and his narrative, not the other way around. So if these are misconceptions of who Jesus was, if people came looking for the spectacle Jesus, the entertain me Jesus, the fit into my plan Jesus, then who was Jesus really? What was he truly trying to say about himself as he came into Israel? Well, in verse 14 and 15, we go to the verse that Sue Ann shared with us earlier. It says, Jesus found a young donkey, a colt, and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Well, in Sunday school, as little kids, we like to talk about the donkey as a humble animal. It's a, it's a working animal. And it's not a very dignified animal. They're stubborn, they, they kick, they screech. Uh, and, and so Jesus coming in on a donkey must mean that, that he's just trying to point to his humility. But the truth is, is that a colt was not seen as a humble beast in this day. A colt was not seen as a working animal in this day. Instead, a colt was a noble beast. And in fact, more often than not, it was the preferred transportation of kings and royalty. You see, kings either rode horses or they rode donkeys. And their mode of transportation had nothing to do with their identity, but everything to do with their intention. A king riding on a horse was declaring to his people that he was in a time of war, that he was a conqueror, that he was victorious. And a king riding on a donkey's colt said that he was ushering in a time of peace for the nation. And so Jesus, as he comes on Palm Sunday, is refuting these believers' claims that he has come to meet their need to overthrow Rome and instead has ridden in on a cult to show that his kingdom is not about war, his kingdom is not about violence, but instead it is about peace. You see, this symbol points back to everything that we know about Jesus preceding this. That Jesus was here to fight religious tyranny, and not political tyranny. That he was here to call us to love and not to hate. That he was to call us to forgiveness and not condemnation, mercy and grace. Jesus was calling this group of 2.7 million people to humility, 
recognizing that they were a part of something so much bigger than they could possibly imagine. You see, when we make assumptions about who Jesus is without actually turning to see who Jesus said he was, then we run the risk of replacing him with a cheap counterfeit, with a knockoff. And we see this to be true in this narrative as well. Just a week later, in chapter 18 of John, Jesus has been arrested and he's been brought into Pilate's court. These crowds that were following along with him, these 2.7 million people don't come to his defense, even though if they did, their support would be overwhelming. His closest friends, his disciples, are nowhere to be found and in fact are even denying that they even know him. And so he stands alone in the court of Pilate facing charges that will bring him a life sentence. In verse 38, Pilate says, What is truth? With this he went out again to the Jews there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But in your custom, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And the crowd that had come to see Jesus and heralded him as their king shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So Jesus is now facing a life or death circumstance. And Pilate turns to the crowd that has just ushered him in as their king, that has praised him and shouted Hosanna on the highest, and says, do you want him or Barabbas? And the crowd calls for Barabbas. It's very easy as we read this without context to assume that the Israelites so hated Jesus that they would take this petty thief instead of him. It's easy to see their choice as a choice of choosing not Jesus because he had failed to live up to their expectations. But the truth is it's much more nuanced than that. As we start to look at historical texts that account for this trial that are not necessarily in Scripture, we understand a little bit broader understanding of who Barabbas was. Barabbas wasn't his first name. Instead, it was his second name. Uh, we know that Simon Peter, the disciple, was Simon Bar-Jonah. And the second name in the Jewish tradition pointed to something about your identity. Simon Bar-Jonah meant Simon, son of Jonah. Well, Barabbas means Bar, son of, Rabban, the rabbi. So Barabbas is called the son of the rabbi. And so by knowing that, we know a couple things about Barabbas. First is that he is from a well-respected family. Rabbis were respected in their community. They were seen as religious and as political leaders. The second is that we know that, that the rabbi's family would have had the best schooling. So we know that Barabbas is from nobility and he is well-educated. And finally, we know that he knows his Bible back and forth. He has likely memorized the entirety of the Torah, the first cha five chapters of the Bible. So Barabbas is not just this, this blue-collar criminal. Instead, he is this respected son of a leader. 
And the second thing is, is it says that he took part in an uprising. Every other time that that word uprising is used within the context of the court system of the time, it is pointing to an insurgency, a terrorist attack. Barabbas was thought to be a zealot, a Jewish zealot that was fighting with, with these terrorist attack to overthrow the rule of the Roman Empire. And so he was standing trial not for petty theft against his fellow Hebrews, but instead because he had likely murdered a Roman official. You see, so he is this religious leader that has seen the need to, to overthrow the oppressors of the Roman Empire, and he's actively seeing that out. And furthermore, his first name is known to be Jesus. And so as, as Pilate calls the people together, he says, who do you want, Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus of Barabbas? And there's this striking symbolism because Jesus of Barabbas is much more akin to the Jesus that the people wanted. He fits into the narrative that they have written. He meets their need. And so it's not that they hate Jesus it's that they need Barabbas. And so they call to free Barabbas. Well, as we look at our own preconceptions of who Jesus is, as we look at our own lens of how we see this world and how we see our Savior, what does our mistaken identity say about who we can easily replace Jesus with? If Jesus is there just to entertain me and make me feel good, then it's easy to worship family, friends, relationship, community, and assume as long as we're following after those things, then surely we must be following after the Savior God. And while Jesus at many times in his ministry lifts those up, there are other times that they're Startling calls to put our families in uncomfortable times. There are calls to, to give up all of our wealth and our possessions. There are calls to turn away from those that we love the most, not because we offer them some sort of condemnation, but instead because the call of Christ is so difficult. And if we're not looking at Jesus, we're going to miss that. If we're looking at Jesus to fulfill a need in our lives, to lead us to success, prosperity, stability, recognition, and influence, then it is easy to assume that any of those things must be Jesus himself and invest ourselves deeply in the comfort and the foundation that comes in with prosperity. You see, the truth is, is that Jesus is neither of those things. He didn't come to meet a need for us, and he certainly did not come to entertain us. And so we must take a deep look this Holy Week at who Jesus is and ask ourselves who we have replaced him with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we have come to this place today to worship you. Lord, we admit that so often we have replaced you with cheap counterfeits of who you really intended for us to see you as. 
Lord, we admit that we mistake your identity every single day and we fit you into our own little perfect plan and look to you to entertain us and make us feel good. Lord, this week, let us look to the truth. Let us humble ourselves before you. And let us look at your ministry, your life, and your word as a challenge to shape our worldviews rather than looking at you to affirm our preconceptions. We pray this in your name. Amen.